Hey church, it is such an honor to be able to speak with you today on Mother's Day. But as we kick it off, I thought I would share a few things that my mom taught me about life as I was growing up. One of the important lessons was about religion. If I would spill something, she would say things like, you better pray that that stain comes out of the carpet. Um, she would also teach me about logic in her very decisive words when she would say things like, because I said so, that's why. Um, she also taught me about stamina, uh, where I couldn't leave the table until I finished my broccoli or maybe I should say liver, That's there's not a whole lot of food I don't like. Um, she also taught me about weather, incidentally, when she would make comments about it looking like a tornado had hit my room. Um, also, the circle of life, when she would say things like, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Um, and certainly about envy, when she would tell me how fortunate I was to have a mother like her. And there were many other less fortunate kids in the world. Um, I, those are all lessons that I swore I would never teach my children. But if they were standing here today, they would say uh, they undoubtedly heard every one of those things come out of my mouth when they were growing up. But uh, in all fun, I, I really want to say happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Um, also to all you other ladies that maybe aren't moms yet. Uh, those of you ladies that may have never had biological children, maybe never will, but you certainly have nurtured and mothered other women along the way. Um, and maybe even some of you women out there that Mother's Day represents a painful time in your life, whatever category that you might fall in, I believe that God has a word for you. You are so special to his heart and he is crazy about you and has used women all through the Bible in history. And today is no exception. Um, so I want to make sure that this morning um, we talk a little bit about a process that we all go through in life, and that's in giving birth. And I know you guys out there, by the way, will get something out of this, but we all give birth to something as we go along in life where something grows within us and it feeds on our body, it feeds on our mind, it changes our perspective, it multiplies our capacity to love, that thing that we will sacrifice for, we will nurture, we will cry over, we will intercede for, that thing that eventually becomes our purpose in life. And I believe that God has put a word on my heart today about those seasons like pregnancy of preparation. Um, obviously, mothers go through seasons of preparation. We call it pregnancy, right? Uh, we read books to help us understand what's going to happen in our bodies in the coming months, sometimes even before the pregnancy happens. Um, nobody told me, by the way, that the 70, 80 pounds that I would gain in a very short 40-week period um, was only supposed to be half of that. 
Um, or how about those very unloving friends that didn't keep me from bringing my pre-pregnancy genes to the hospital um, as I had this vision of what this preparation was going to be like. And naturally, when the season was over, I was going to leave this hospital just like I was before I went in, only carrying this beautiful baby out. And we anticipate even with that each milestone before it even comes up. We're picking colleges, we're picking careers, we're anticipating every step of the way, sometimes even picking spouses before we know the gender. If you're a mom out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but we can't wait as each step comes, even we can't wait to get that belly so the world knows that we're pregnant or even so they know that we're not having a love affair with a giant burrito. Um, But as the pregnancy progresses, we get weary of the discomfort that comes with the waiting. And as as the baby grows and gets too big for the space, we begin to get impatient and we long to see, to hold, to kiss that baby, so much so that if the choice was ours, we would bring that preparation time to an end before it should be over. And then there are seasons of preparation that we don't know what we're we're preparing for at all. I can say certainly the times in my life that have had the most impact are those times when I had no idea I was in a a season of preparation. I thought I was just going from one thing to the next, stumbling through in survival mode, waiting for the circumstances to change. In fact, I've found that in those seasons when I encountered the most obstacles, those ones that didn't seem to have a point at all, they were disappointing, they were hurtful, they seemed unfair, those were the seasons that challenged my character the most. And they developed within me the ability to trust in a sovereign God who promises that all things work together for our good. So I'm going to talk about a story in the Bible that's not a typical Mother's Day message, but a great story about a season of preparation. We're going to talk about Esther. Um, But before that, I want to pray for you really quickly before we dive in. God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to share with your church, with your body this morning, this amazing message about seasons of preparation and to be able to have stories like this where we can look back and reflect and parallel our own lives and gain truth from it. So I pray that during this time, we would be able to do just that, grab the truth out of this story, have it resonate within our hearts that nobody that's listening leaves the same as when they started. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to I want to dive into Esther. Esther carries within her a purpose from the time that she is born. And we see it develop and come to maturity in her within the story that we're going to explore. And I really felt like it was timely because we've been in our own season of preparing for what I believe is a mighty move of God coming from in these last few months. Um, and if you're out there and feeling alone or if you've ever felt like God is absent, 
This is a great story to be able to see God's heart. By the way, the name of God is never mentioned in the story, but you certainly can see his fingerprints all throughout in every detail. So I wanna give you a little background right before we enter into the story so you have a good understanding of the context and the setting. Um, So we know that Israel had struggled with faithfulness for generations. They struggled with idolatry. They would take um, credit themselves and try to do the work on their own without relying on God. They had pride. They were arrogant. Does it sound like maybe a world that we might live in right now? I don't think it's too different out there. But we see throughout the Old Testament prophecy and deliverance come multiple times. And this is no exception. So as we're setting up this story, the children of Israel had been uh, in exile in Babylon for generations. as That's when we see the prophet Daniel emerge right after the exile to Babylon. And in Daniel's time, actually, he prophesied a hundred years before for the birth of this ruler about this ruler, his name is Cyrus the Great, was gonna come in and conquer the unconquerable Babylonian empire. Cyrus is going to to take over. So we see that come to fruition uh, right before we get into the, the book of Esther. So Cyrus is a Mede king. He comes and he conquers Babylon, um, and that's during the time of the Mede-Persian Empire. Then we see that empire merge together and become what's now known as the largest historical empire in the world um, up to this period of time, which is the Persian Empire. Okay, so... Cyrus comes to power. Um, the Jewish exiles that were in Babylon at the time are now released to go back um, and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But what we see is an entire remnant of the Jewish people that stayed because that was their home. There was generations that had that had settled in that land. So now this empire has grown. We're, we're a few generations later. Cyrus's grandson is now, now actually on the throne of the Persian Empire. His name is King Xerxes. Uh, he's also known as Azarus, um, which that's what we'll refer to him as as we're talking today. But we meet him right off the bat in the first chapter of Esther, and he's having a 180-day banquet. That was not a slip up. That is a six month banquet to celebrate all of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his success. Um, That was the culture of the Persians at the time. They turned feasting into an art form, by the way. They spared no expense to showcase all the success of their kingdom. And they were inventors of many things, one of them being a really robust and very progressive mail system. The other one was eating in courses, which would make sense if you're gonna have a banquet for six months, you better have new stuff to bring, right? Um, So he had a wife, Vashti. Um, She also was having a banquet at the same time um, as her husband, King Azarus. Um, Quick sidebar history, by the way, uh, about women in leadership. 
Um, in, during the Persian Empire, they were really progressive at the time. Women in royalty actually were well regarded in business. So they would own their own land. They had their own workforce. They had their own estates. They had they held administrative offices. They were really powerful influencers in the kingdom. So on to that's that's just for free, by the way, just a nice little fun fact about the queens in Persia. But we move on to now another banquet. This is a second banquet. So the first one for six months, King Assyrus has all of his princes and his his nearby administrative staff, right? And then he opens up a seven day banquet for the entire province to come and enjoy the spoils of all of his wealth. Um, so we're going to enter the story right here in chapter one, uh, verse 10 at the end of his second banquet. So on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his eunuchs, I'm not gonna try their names because they're tricky, uh, but they served in the presence of King Azarus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come and the king's commands delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. So basically the king wants to show off his wife's beauty and flaunt her for all of his drunken friends. He'd ran out of things to show off. His wife naturally would be next. When she refused him, of course he's humiliated, he's embarrassed and he's angry. So he decides to consult with his friends because he doesn't know what to do next. His friends tell him that he should essentially divorce her. So he does. Um, and then we see three years later, now the historian Josephus uh, actually referenced that, that King Azarus was very in love with Vashti and, and very close to her and was very disappointed at her at his, her rejection of him and was somewhat lonely. So as they're seeing the king in this period of loneliness, this is where a story really kicks off. In verse two of chapter two, the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's he's in charge of the women, and let her cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So as the commissioners are searching for the next wife of the king, they come across Esther, a young Jewish girl. Some suspect she should have been as young as 13 or 14 at the time. And in verse seven, really all we see about her is that she's beautiful in form and face. So she captures the, uh, the attention of these commissioners now we know that generations before from the history in the Bible, her family was exiled to Babylon. So they had for generations been established there. We all know, we also know that she had endured the loss of both of her parents and she was being raised by her cousin, Mordecai. Um, so I want you to stop real quickly and I'm gonna pause and really think 
about Esther's situation for a minute. You're talking a 13, 14 year old Jewish girl. We're assuming a very pious Jewish girl, and we're going to see based on the traditions and the customs that she's, a, that she's used to why we get that. But I consider this a really pivotal and horrific moment. She's an orphan. She's been brought up in Jewish culture. She's now ripped from her home, her family, her friends, her life to join the king's harem because she's pretty. She's never gonna return. She's taken far away. We don't know exactly where she lived. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know the expanse of the Babylonian empire is about 1700 miles. So somewhere in there, but she's never gonna return. She's gonna go to the king's harem for good. Talk about a disgraceful fate. Now, it may have been an honor for some of the the young Persian girls. I don't know, this sounds like a pretty much an authorized kidnapping to me, but it certainly would not have been an honor for a young Jewish girl because it would have been offensive and it would have been against the, the law of God for them to marry outside of Judaism. And all she knew about the king, by the way, was that he divorced his last wife for not dancing seductively in front of his drunk friends. She had to be wondering, is that something that I'm going to be required to do? Think about that. We see the character of her automatically start to come through in the story because it appears that she goes with them without incident, this young girl. I imagine her cousin had to be absolutely devastated. He's raising her as his daughter. He can't protect her. Does, Does he argue with them? Does he fight back? We don't know if he tries. The Bible doesn't tell us, but he does try to protect her by protecting her heritage. So he makes her promise to not reveal that she's Jewish. So we assume based on the scripture that he goes to make his home in Susa with her. He said, the Bible tells us he's standing at the king's gate. And I believe that's to watch over her very closely, but we don't know exactly for sure. But we do know that Esther, even though in this situation, she's no stranger to pain. She really did know how to do hard things. She'd already lost her parents. And we see her obedient heart right out of the gate in the midst of what had to be crazy scary, uncertain. She wouldn't have gained favor though, as we're gonna see in the next little bit of scripture, had she been rebellious and obstinate in any way. I believe that she had a way about her. So in chapter two, verse nine, I'm gonna read uh, about this character that we're gonna see. So now the young lady pleased him. This is the attendant, um, one of the king's eunuchs that she was in their care and she found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and with food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace. And he transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. She found favor and he gave her special attention. Now, I believe from the time she was born, Esther was being prepared for this moment. That's why we see this obedient heart. That's why we see this character come through that automatically begins to give her favor. She was about to walk into a destiny that would change the fate of all of her people. It's an incredible story. 
And I believe those things that she probably thought growing up were just her lot in life or her cross to bear shaped her into the woman of God that she was to be, that God was gonna use to find favor now with these foreign leaders as she would have never gotten anywhere else. She's now in the largest and most influential kingdom the world had ever seen. Think about that. A young orphan Jewish exile now in the palace of the largest empire the world had ever seen. Only God can do that. Think about that. This, this, this empire, by the way, for those of you that aren't familiar with how vast it is, when I say it was enormous, it stretched all the way from Europe down to Egypt and as far over as India. And it was said at the time that 44% of the earth's population lived within the Persian empire. Vast territory. So now we're gonna see a parallel though as she enters this next season of preparation. So that first season of preparation growing up was one of those unknown seasons. She didn't know what she was preparing for. She didn't know what life was gonna bring her way, what God was developing within her. But now she's going into a season of known preparation as she's preparing to meet the king. And we're going to see an incredible parallel in this time, in this physical experience of her beauty ritual. So let's read um, starting at verse 12 in chapter two. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Azarus at the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the, for the women, for the days of their beautification, were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem into the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shegzgaz, these names are terrible, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, some of you might be thinking, who wouldn't want to be in a spa for an entire year, right? That's essentially what it was. They're just getting pampered and prepared to meet the king. Imagine the sense of competition in this one though. All of these women who know that as soon as you've spent the night with the king, you then go to a new wing of the palace so all your special treatment goes away. All that you've gotten used to in the last year after you've come away from your home, unless you're the one in 400 that the king asks for by name. Now I'm gonna suspect that Esther didn't think that she was gonna be named queen. I'm gonna probably even be so bold as to suggest that she probably didn't want to be queen. But if you think about the attitude that she carried and how she gained favor, she had to do a series or go through a series of letting go. She had to really resolve herself if she's not believing she's gonna be queen, and maybe she was, but to a life of loneliness sealed fate of loneliness. 
Or what about a giving up of all the dreams that she had in her heart? Like any young girl, I'm sure that she dreamed about being pursued by her future husband, that she dreamed about what her wedding would be like, how many kids she would have. She might have even named her kids, as we all do growing up. But if you think about the attitude she had to carry, I believe in her letting go, she had to fully surrender to the Almighty and say, if it dies, it dies. And also, how was she ever going to honor the laws of the Most High God that she was raised to serve in a harem cast away from everything she knew? So this beauty ritual, as she's preparing for her meeting with the king, and it included one name treatment. And that first six months, it was oil of myrrh. I believe that that is significant. So myrrh, we see a few times in the Bible, by the way, it's made from a tree resin and it was used for a variety of purposes at the time. But the main use for myrrh was purification. It represented a new season, entrance into that new season and a time of setting apart. By the way, Mordecai's name actually means myrrh. Talk about a great representation of her setting apart and her preparation and anointing time growing up until she reaches this point. Esther was being set apart and she was being prepared for a move of God that was about to happen through her. But just like anything else in life, it seems like if we're not in a storm, we're either going into one or we're coming out of one. And we see now this presence of evil come in with the rise of this character called Haman. The enemy is always going to try to send a distraction, specifically when we're walking in that purpose that God is calling us to. So he enters the story in chapter three, and we're gonna go ahead and read verses one through six really quickly. So after these events, King Azarus promoted Haman, the son of, I'm not even gonna try that, the Agite, and advanced him and, was, and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed nor paid homage. Now remember Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is at the gate in service to the king. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing, transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Asaras. So there's a little bit more to this character Haman than, we're, than we just saw in this story. So I'm going to give you some background. Esther and Mordecai were Benjaminites by birth. So was King Saul. 
Some of you may remember King Saul. He was the one who chased David around, trying to kill him for years after he had been anointed king in his place. And the very thing that took Saul out of the running was disobedience. So the Samuel, the the prophet had prophesied to Saul that God was gonna give him victory over this evil people group called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were treacherous and horrible. So he was given though by Samuel very strict instructions to not leave any remnant behind. All the women, all the children, all the cattle, take no plunder even. Everything that belonged to them was evil. So Saul disobeys and he took for himself some of the choice cattle and he also spared the king. Now, when he was called out by Samuel, he immediately responds with, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sacrifice some of those animals to the Lord. I'm gonna give those back to the Lord. And God's response through Samuel was that obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, if generations later, Haman, as it so happens, is a descendant of Agag, which is the king Saul spared in disobedience. Now, before you sit there and shake your head at King Saul and at Haman, you gotta remember that we do the same thing, church. We ask God for a purpose. We ask him to set a plan in our heart to send us out to do something for for him, to even give us a path. But then we wanna hang on to just a little bit of what he asks us to let go of. Maybe it's a little bit of pride. Maybe it's a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of sin. When my kids wanna watch a movie that has stuff in it that I don't think they should watch, I tell them, I'll just put a little, little bit of poop on your pizza before you watch that movie. We just wanna spare that little bit. And sometimes we even tell the Lord that we'll do it for his glory. We'll give it to you, God, in the process. But in preparation for what God is doing in every one of us, the enemy always sends a distraction. That thing that causes us to question, that causes us to fear, that causes us to wanna hang on to a safety net. Maybe that thing that causes us to take matters into our own hands because we're not ready to fully trust in God's plan because it's uncomfortable. The enemy always wants to derail God's purpose for our life. And in this story, we see 600 years later, the enemy, that flesh, that evil, that little bit that was allowed to remain is still wreaking havoc on the people of God, still asking that they bow to it, to him, instead of the most high God. Plus, I gotta say, it was high time that a woman come finish the job that should have been done 600 years before. I just had to say that, totally kidding. I can't see you laughing, but I'm gonna assume you're laughing. Perspective, though, is a beautiful thing when you're on the other side of it. The thing is, when you're in the battle, when you're in that time of struggle, when you're in that refining and that preparation period, our perspective gets really skewed. And we think that we know best and that God doesn't understand our situation and we begin to negotiate with him. We begin to avoid the discomfort and we do whatever it takes to get out of where we're at in that moment. When I was pregnant with every one of my kids, I would get to a point in that pregnancy where I was done being pregnant. And I would do 
anything that I could come up with to get that baby out of my body. Now, when it was safe, of course, but I was done. I wanted to move on to the next stage. Haman, this is an evil enemy. And now he comes in, he uses his position with the king to influence the king for his own purposes. He convinces the king that the Jews aren't honorable people. They're a threat to his kingdom. So the king gives him authority to do whatever he wants with them. So Haman writes an order. It's called an edict. You'll see it in the Bible. And he sends it out across the land in this great mail system that they've invented, right? But a year later, that all the Jews were to be killed. They were to be slaughtered, period, end of story. Edicts in the Persian empire were irreversible. They could not be undone. So naturally, everybody knowing this sees the evil of Haman. They get distracted from the fact that God just put one of his own in the palace and they begin to go into a period of travail. And Mordecai is at the king's gate and he's covered in ashes, wearing sackcloth, and he draws the attendant of Esther, he draws the attention of Esther and her attendant. And we see this outward display of despair in Haman and the Jewish people feeling like their time is coming to an end. But I believe that this verse that we're about to read that sums up this entire story gives Esther some perspective to help her consider her challenges and to help her find the courage to walk in her calling. So let's read verses seven through 14 in chapter four. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. This is the attendant, by the way. And the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king and implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Hathik, this is the attendant, came back, related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke back to Hathik and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who's not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have, been in, whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai knew the heart of God. He knew God would send a deliverer. He'd been proven time and time again. But this powerful who knows question comes up. What a powerful couple of words. Who knows? Who knows whether the battles that you have faced 
for years have all been part of this exact place and time and this plan that you need to be able to walk through that God's developing in you to come into your calling. Who knows? Who knows that this time of even forced slowdown has forced you to be able to reconnect with your kids and your husband in a way that takes you to another place so that the destructive schemes of the enemy can't take root in your life. Who knows that? Who knows if you would have not seen an opportunity that's about to come your way as a result of you being laid off that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise? Who knows? I believe this question sparked something within Esther, a sense of knowing and a reminder of the character of God that she was raised to serve. And knowing that all of her pain and all of her sorrow, maybe even her feelings of inadequacy and not belonging that she had had felt in the palace were all for a purpose and that the God that she knew his heart wouldn't waste that pain. So she makes a decision and she decides that she's going to go walk courageously toward the unknown. She didn't know how she was going to make her heritage known. She'd been hiding it her entire time in the palace. She didn't know if the king would accept her. After all, look what happened to the last queen that crossed him. She didn't know if he would even care about her people or what concerned her. But she did know the faithfulness of her God. And she had learned that in the face of a plan that she can't see, God seems to always be working on something. She'd also learned though that preparation and a time of setting apart was a very important step to take before walking into the unknown. So this time she decides she's gonna set herself apart. She's learned this behavior. She calls her people to a three-day fast. And in verse, uh, verse 16 of chapter four, she says, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. This is a complete fast, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. After the fast, then we see her put on her royal attire. I believe she had a plan. I believe God infused Holy Spirit strength into her. She gets all gussied up and she goes into the courts of the king, confident in her resolve and with a clear and calculated plan to also prepare the king for what was going to come his way, for the message that she was going to deliver. Preparing him to receive her plea through the very thing, by the way, that started this whole sequence of events, a banquet. I love that God led her to speak to the king in a way that he would understand. Banquets were his thing. He perfected them. Nobody did them better than he did. I also love that God used the very platform that the former queen was dismissed from to use Esther. Because Esther was not just any queen, she was God's chosen. And he was demonstrating through her that he was in full control. Esther approached the king and he knew, he had to know something was wrong, I'm assuming he knew, right? Otherwise, why would she have risked her life to come to him? But she was gonna go about this different than her predecessor and he could see it. She was about to take the time and show him the respect and the honor he sought with Vashti before she revealed her true heart to him. She displayed tact by ensuring he was ready to hear the message before she shared it. 
That'll preach in any marriage seminar right there, by the way. And the rest of the story, we see this great turn of events leading up to a second banquet. She doesn't, she doesn't reveal her heart to the king right then. She invites him and Haman to a second banquet overnight. Then God awakens the king in the night and sees the, the Holy Spirit leads him to this place or his attendant to this place in the history books that shows that Mordecai had spared his life earlier. So basically seeing that the Jewish people had been honorable toward him, which I believe was a seed. And then the second banquet happens and Esther's able to reveal her identity, the evil plot of Haman to destroy her people. And the king has Haman killed, gives all of Haman's possessions to Esther. And that's, that's the quick version of how that whole thing transpires. Haman's dead, and it may appear that the story is over, that the work is finished, but there's still this unrevocable decree that had been issued by the king that was unreversible. It couldn't be undone. The Jews were scheduled to be slaughter, slaughtered, and God was not done with Esther. The king gave her then his authority. He handed her the signet ring that he had given to Haman, gave her authority to now rescue her people. So she writes this counter decree, allowing the Jewish people to defend themselves before the slaughter could happen. God opening a door for her to stamp out all of the sin that had been allowed to remain, all of that remnant. And Haman, like our enemy Satan, we know that someday Satan is gonna be cast to hell forever. Many of us wait for that day, right? but we still had that righteous decree that demanded our death to deal with. No different than in this story. That decree created fear in these people. No different than the stories that we hear today. Think of the messaging of fear you're receiving right now. It's false advertising, right? Jesus had a different plan for her, for his people than what Haman had. And he has a different plan for us than what Satan would like you to believe. And we gotta make a choice whether we believe the words of the media or our accuser, or if we believe in the faithfulness of our God for deliverance and to hold fast to the promises he's been so faithful to honor through our whole life, the promise of a future and a hope. Paul says in chains, by the way, that he's confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So no matter what your circumstances are, church, we serve a faithful God. God solves his problem here and in everything, and it's not God's problem, by the way, but he doesn't compromise his word, but he fulfills the demand. He filled the demand of death by taking the punishment we deserved. His counter decree saved us and we don't have to fear any outcome. And I know these people over the course of the next several months probably encountered doubt and fear and discouragement and were taunted by the evil people of the land before the day came. But they had a choice no different than we do today. They could choose to focus on the sentence of death or they could choose to believe in that God who placed Esther into the palace on their behalf, that he would bring deliverance as promised and as he had proven time and again. Our COVID-19 situation, economic challenges, health issues, they are no surprise to God. 
But if we take the time to remember the heart of God in the midst of our uncertainty, we can turn that uncertainty into anticipation because the joy and the expectation of their deliverance in people that believed brought revival. In Esther 8:17, we read that in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many among the people of the land became Jews. Could you imagine though, how this wonderful story and this great ending would have changed had there not been those seasons of preparation? Or even if Esther would have known what she was preparing for all along. As women, especially, people in general though, we get fixated on, we wanna know exactly what our outcome's gonna be. The outcome begins to consume us and we feel like we wanna take matters into our own hands and do our own preparing. But, thing, but church, we will, we will mess up every time. We'll either take credit or we'll avoid the hard things that it takes to develop our character for the necessary preparation for things that are come along our way. If we're able to see the end from the beginning, we will be no different than these people that thought that they had the power on their own. And we'll always avoid the things that are gonna shape us the most. So here's a key I want you to get in your heart. If we focus too much on that ultimate outcome, we may miss the important preparation necessary in our current season. So be present. Notice the wisdom, the courage, the tact that God gave Esther. And even in her timing, as he gave her wisdom, when to speak, when to share, when to open her heart, when to make her request known, and when to confront this seemingly impossible situation. Jesus prepared for 33 years for his ministry. Ezra had the opportunity to go back and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, and he was there making sacrifice, worshiping for two years before a brick was laid. David ran for years from Saul after knowing he'd already been anointed king. We see time and time again these seasons of preparation. So I wanna leave you with a few final thoughts to really marinate on that I believe that God has specifically for his church at this time. God uses the very common things to do miracles, by the way. Oftentimes we expect the clouds to part and God's hand to reach out and do a miracle. And can he? Absolutely. Will he? he has time and time again. He's a sovereign God. He can do whatever he wants. But the beauty of this relationship is that he prefers to use us. So don't underestimate the power of the circumstances that you're in right now. You don't know what God is leading you to. Number two, be a woman of wisdom and tact and patience. Don't move forward until you've sought the Lord and you have paused and prepared the banquet then take courage and move forward and step, step into that unknown, knowing that God's got your back. And number three, embrace that character development. Esther was a woman that grabbed the initial attention of her pageant crew because she was beautiful, absolutely. But she gained favor because of who she was. Character is developed in the struggle, in the discomfort, and in the waiting. 
Don't miss that, church. And don't be so quick to abandon your prayers for a purpose to be developed. God is sovereign and his plan is perfect. And his heart is to fulfill the desires in yours, by the way. But he may have a different path for you in getting there than you might have. We can see in Esther's character that she was a born leader, by the way. Who was Esther going to lead out in her regular home life? We see her develop into this wonderful woman in a place of leadership and influence in the largest empire in the world at the time. I believe that leadership dream had been in her heart, but she had no idea how she was going to get there. If it were up to us, we would have begged God not to have her taken from her family. We would have asked God not to have these horrific things happen, maybe not even have her parents be lost from her. But we never know what God has in store. But we can certainly trust him in the most painful and challenging of circumstances. So let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for your word that we can pull so much experience and learn so much about your faithfulness in your word. And I pray as we go on about our daily lives in celebration, hopefully, of somebody in our lives today, that we all also celebrate how good you are. We celebrate your love for us that loves us despite the fact that we continue to try and take control. And God, I just, as a body, ask that you help us to relinquish control in this COVID situation, people that are out of work, people that are uncertain, that are fearful. God, that you'd help us to let go of all of that and trust your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.